You're listening to A Sure Hope with Pastor Dave Shank of Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. Join us as Pastor Dave teaches verse by verse through God's Word. gives them the fourth proof, presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the fourth proof that Jesus is proving to them that Jesus is alive and resurrected. Look at verses 33 through 36. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says of himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstool. When Jesus came, he fulfilled all of the prophecies found in the Old Testament. Peter was showing the people how Jesus fulfilled the promise of bringing the Holy Spirit to his people. In today's message, Pastor Dave will be sharing about how big the Holy Spirit's impact was in Peter's sermon and in his ministry. Now, here's Pastor Dave in the book of Acts chapter 2 as he continues his message, Peter's Sermon Part 2. Suppose today, as we're giving the gospel message, there's someone in the audience here, there's someone in the congregation here who is this far away from accepting Lord Jesus and going into eternal life. And we're preaching God's word here, and we're coming into a real important part of God's word, and they're hanging on it, and they feel their hearts start to quicken. And just about that time, there's a distraction of some sort, and they turn their head, and they miss that moment. That could have been the moment that brought them into the kingdom of God. That's how important the word of God is. That's how important the word of God should be. We should revere the Word of God as it is. It's the Word of God, the actual Word written down, penned by the Holy Spirit in man. It's God's Word, God's letter to us. Jesus knew the value of listening, knew the value of hearing the Word of God. In the book of Revelation, he writes seven letters to seven churches. At the end of each letter, what does he say? He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You need to hear the Word of God. It enriches your faith, and it builds you up. So now Peter is moving into the heart of his sermon, and the heart of his sermon is Jesus Christ. In the second part of verse 22, he sums up the life of Jesus. In verse 23, he speaks of the death of Jesus. And in verse 24, he speaks of Jesus' life, I mean, excuse me, speaks of Jesus' resurrection. In 30 seconds, Peter encompasses Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's some preaching. That's not bad. Wrap all this up. In these verses, Peter tells these men, these seekers of God, about the truth of Jesus of Nazareth. He tells them that indeed he had been raised from the dead and that the resurrection proves that this Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the one that they've been waiting for. The one that we sang about today, Emmanuel, God with us. Emmanuel, they've been waiting for their God to come down. All the prophecies told so. The entire Bible is full of nothing but prophecies of that Jesus would come. And they were waiting for him. Peter is saying, he came. He was here. This is the one that the Scripture says. This is the one that was attested by God. Peter gives them four proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Look at verses 22 and 24. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves also know, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should die by it. The first proof Peter provides is the very person of Jesus Christ. The first thing Peter tells them is something that they already know. Jesus was a man. But here, Peter is clearly describing the incarnation, the incarnation of God, God coming to earth as a man. This is what we celebrate this time of the year. This is what we celebrate, God coming to earth. John puts it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father in John 1.14. This was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. And later we're told this exact same thing in Matthew 1, 22 and 23. Matthew says, so all this might be done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and she shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Yes, Jesus was a man. Even his name tells us who he is. Peter tells us, men, that Jesus was a man attested by God to do miracles, signs, and wonders. He openly did these things. He didn't hide in the corner doing these miracles. He openly did signs and wonders, attesting who he was. And everyone that saw the miracles knew that the miracles were from God. Everyone that saw Jesus do these things said, these have to be from God. Everybody that heard him speak, everybody that seen him, seen his life, everybody knew because they watched him intently. They couldn't refute what was happening. They couldn't discount the things that were going on. This was God. These were signs and miracles that were happening all over the place. They couldn't find any fault in him. Peter continues and says, this Jesus being delivered by the predetermined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you've taken by lawless hands and have crucified, put to death. It was incredible that such a man as this, as Jesus, would be put to death. And when when you're looking at verse 23, from a human point of view, the crucifixion appears to be a, a terrible crime. It appears to be a terrible crime. Look at the words, delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. You know, as we celebrate Jesus' birth this time of the year, never let it be forgotten why he had to come. He came for a distinct purpose. That purpose was to go to the cross and to die, taking upon himself the entire sin of the world. He came to become our sacrifice. He came to do what we could not do ourselves. I read for you Isaiah 50, verse 7 today when we were in communion. It says, the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Jesus set his face like a flint towards the cross. He had one purpose and one purpose only. Every action he took, everything he did led to the cross. Nothing happened that he did not know was going to happen and that he did not allow to happen. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 9, verse 51 Luke says this, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him, Jesus, to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. Set his face like a flint, looking straight at the cross. The purpose and the foreknowledge of God. When his time had come, he went to the cross. He despised all shame. And now he's seated at right hand of God the Father. When did all this occur? When did all this foreknowledge happen? Before the foundations of the world. Before the very foundations of the world itself. This was decided. The plan was for Jesus to come to earth as a man. To die for us. 
redeeming us, reconciling us with the Father. You know, it's interesting here that right before us now, we see the tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Peter says to them, you crucified him. You, you guys crucified him, speaking to the Jews that were assembled there. But it was a predeterminate counsel and the foreknowledge of God. So who's at fault here? Was it God's choice or man's responsibility? You know, that's a pretty difficult argument. You could argue about that a long time ago. All I know and all I'm saying is God is sovereign, but yet man has a responsibility. God's will is going to be worked out, but man is going to be held accountable. A great scholar, J.B. Phillips, said this pretty interesting thing. He said, if God was small enough for us to figure out, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. Pretty interesting quote there. But just as verse 23 seems like a crucifixion was a terrible crime, we're reminded in verse 24 that it was indeed a wonderful victory because after the crucifixion comes the resurrection. After death comes life. And that was a wonderful victory. This was Jesus whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should die by it. The word translated pains here actually means birth pangs, suggesting that the tomb of Jesus Christ was actually a womb to the newborn Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ, if you can picture that. Death couldn't hold him. He defeated death. Why? Because God has raised him up from the dead, freeing him from death's agony, because it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. Now, just like now, back in those days, news traveled pretty fast. News got around pretty well for not having papers and internet and Facebook and all that other stuff. News got around pretty fast. And most of the adults who were in Jerusalem right now, most of the people assembled, they knew too well about the arrest, the trial, and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They knew all about it. They had heard the rumors. They had heard the official announcement that said that his followers had stolen his bodies just as to make people think that he would keep his word about being raised from the dead. The official announcement that came out, oh, they stole the body, those guys, so you can't believe that. But Peter was telling the crowd that it was because Jesus was raised from the dead, the resurrection, this proves that he's the Messiah. This proves without a shadow of doubt that he was the Messiah. Peter is using Old Testament Scripture to prove that Jesus was their Messiah. And he supports this argument by quoting two mysterious Psalms by David, who he calls a prophet. Both these Psalms can only be fulfilled by one person, the Christ, the Messiah. So the first proof of the resurrection was Jesus alive. The second proof of the resurrection was the prophecy of David. In verses 25 through 31, look at this. Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, Peter says, let me freely speak to you that the patriarch David, that he is both buried and dead, and his tomb is with us today. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he, God, would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. Peter quotes these verses that obviously could not apply to David because David was dead. David was buried. 
in the city of David, in Jerusalem. David was buried with the rest of the kings. It could not apply to him. David was writing about the Messiah, that his soul would not remain in Hades. And Hades means realm of the dead. And his body would not remain in, in the grave. David was in the grave. David's in the grave even today. And I love it when you hear the thing, when you hear someone say, like, like, like Frank will say, you'll hear when he's worshiping, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. We know that. We know that for a fact. All the other tombs of all the other kings, all the people on David's throne are filled with their bodies, their rotting bones to this day. Jesus' tomb is empty. And Jesus is alive. David is still there. David could not have been speaking about himself. He must have been speaking about the Messiah. This is a well-known messianic verse. And if you talk to a Jewish person, they will realize this is speaking of their Messiah. However, we have the benefit of the New Testament. We know from Scripture that Jesus did descend into the earth and he set the captives free before ascending into heaven. In Ephesians 4, verses 8 to 10, the Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? That he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. So David's talking about descending into Hades. Jesus descended and set the captives free, set the souls. All the saints of the Old Testament were set free by Jesus Christ. This proves and can only prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. The third proof of the resurrection is the witnesses of believers. Look at verse 32. This Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses. Peter's saying they're all witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. You know, we spoke about this at great length when we went over chapter 1. And he, he did not only appear to the disciples, he appeared to 500 people. There were witnesses all over the place. If you had that many witnesses in a court of law, you would be guilty of whatever they're charging you of if you had that many witnesses come against you. But he commissioned his believers to be witnesses. Why was the reason the Holy Spirit let fell? What was the reason the Holy Spirit came upon them? And you shall be my witnesses. That's why the Holy Spirit fell in the first place. He commissioned his followers to give witness that he's alive. But were they dependable witnesses? Were these guys, could they be trusted? Well, certainly they could be trusted. Before Christ's resurrection, these disciples didn't even believe he would be raised from the dead. They were doubters. They were all doubting whether Christ was going to be raised from the dead or not. You can find that in Mark 16, 9 through 14, and Acts 1, verse 3. They had to be convinced themselves. They had nothing to gain by preaching a lie. There was nothing for them but preaching a lie. Besides, some of them were carted off to jail, most of them were beaten, and a lot of them were martyred and died. But they never relented. They never refuted the fact that Jesus was alive. You know, a few fanatics might have gone for this for a while, and they probably, once you started pounding on them and torturing them, they probably would have relented and said, okay, 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 I'm lying. But these people went to their deaths. And not only these people, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands more have died for the cause of Jesus Christ, not relenting and not giving in, but saying that Jesus is alive and the resurrection is true. Those of you that have accepted Jesus' sacrifice on a cross, those of you that are born again and are living in a lively faith, you know the resurrection is true. You know that the Lord is living today because he's living in your heart and he's doing marvelous and wonderful things and you know that your lives have been changed by that very, very reason. Jesus is alive. Don't let anybody ever tell you differently. Jesus is alive. So 
we have three proofs so far of the resurrection. We have the person of Jesus Christ, the prophecy of David, and the witnesses of believers. And finally, Peter gives them the fourth proof, presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the fourth proof that Jesus is proving to them that Jesus is alive and resurrected. Look at verses 33 through 36. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies my footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now look at what Peter's saying here and try to follow this logic. If the Holy Spirit is in the world, then God must have sent him. Joel prophesied that God would send the Holy Spirit. That was the first point. Jesus himself promised the Holy Spirit as a gift to his people. You can find that in Luke 24, 49, John 14, 26, John 15, 26, and even Acts 1, 4. But if Jesus is dead, he cannot send the Spirit. Therefore, he must be alive. Furthermore, he could not send the Spirit unless he had returned to the Father. You can find that in John 16, 7. So Jesus also ascended into heaven. To further back up his statement, Peter quotes David again from Psalm 110, verse 1, a verse that certainly cannot be applied to David. In fact, in Matthew 22, in verses 41 to 46, Jesus comes right after the Pharisees with this very question. He comes right after the Pharisees with this very, very question indeed. In verse 41 of Matthew 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they all said, the son of David. Then he said, then how does David say in the spirit, call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. And they never asked him another question after that. He got him. How can this happen? (laughs) All right. Whose son is he? Whose son is he? I wonder what the audience was thinking when Peter said this. I wonder what Peter was implying. They're thinking, what's going on here? This is starting to all come together. It's all starting to make sense. What Peter was implying to these Jews that were gathered into the temple that day, those ones that were seeking God, he was implying this. Jesus was a descendant of David. Yes. Jesus was the son of David. Yes. But more importantly, Jesus was and is the son of God. Because they knew that the son of David in that context means the Messiah, means the Holy One of Israel, means the Anointed One, the Christ. Peter made it all come together in this beautiful, beautiful Scripture, in this wonderful thing. It's very interesting here that Peter doesn't mention the cross yet as being a place where sin is taken away. He doesn't mention that this is where the true sacrifice was accomplished and our sinless substitute died in our stead, died for the entire world. No, Peter says that you guys committed the greatest crime in the history of the world. Israel has killed their own Messiah. He lays that on them. He says, you crucified. You did it. There'll come a day when Jesus stands before the people of Israel and he declares himself to be the Son of God, declares himself to be God, shows Israel the nail prints, shows Israel 
the side. And they'll say, where did you get that? And they'll say, I got that in the house of a friend. And they will know. And they will all fall to their knees weeping because it is the same Jesus Christ. The one that was crucified. The one that they're rejecting even to this day. They are rejecting him as Lord, as Savior. The next scripture that we'll study next week says these men were cut to the heart. Their hearts were cut open. That's the word of God, that two-edged sword that comes in and gets between bone and marrow and strikes right to the heart. Their hearts were cut to the quick, and they didn't know what to do. What shall we do, they're going to ask. What shall we do? These guys had heard amazing things like the sound of a rushing wind. They had heard wonders of God in their own languages spoken by foreigners, unlearned men from Galilee. These men, then Peter stands before them. He has this boldness, and he preaches with power and persuasion. They heard him accurately apply Scripture. They heard irrefutable evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, and Jesus is the resurrected Messiah. These men wondered if there was any hope. Is there any hope? What shall we do, they asked. What shall we do? Peter's sermon wasn't over. And Peter would give them one more explanation of why this all happened. And it would be the best news they ever heard in their entire lives for 3,000 of them. For 3,000 of them. Paul would tell them that all this happened, that sinners might be saved. That sinners could come into the world. Next week, we will finish Peter's sermon. We will finish Peter's sermon part three. But maybe you're here today and you've heard this evidence about the resurrection given by Peter. Maybe you've never thought of it that way. Maybe you've been on the precipice. Say that five times. Maybe you've been on the precipice of being saved. Maybe you've been on that fence wobbling back and forth. You really don't know which way. Maybe today, with all this evidence that we presented before you, maybe the Holy Spirit gave you a nudge and you fell off the fence on the right side. And you're sitting there asking yourself, what do I do now? I have all this information. I believe it to be true. I need some more information, but I believe it to be true. What do I do now? I'm so glad you asked. What you do now is you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and Scripture says you will be saved. Remember what Peter said last week in the last verse we studied last week in verse 21 of Acts 2? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I implore you, if you haven't made that decision, make it today. It'll be the greatest gift you've ever received in your entire life. You talk about a gift-giving season, a season of joy, a season of promise. That gift is the greatest gift ever given to the world. I implore you, make that decision today. Let today be the day of your salvation, the day when you come into the kingdom of God. And he says to you, welcome my son. Welcome my daughter. I've been waiting for you. Let me lavish upon you some more and let me love you. I implore you to do that today. You are You've been listening to A Sure Hope Radio with Pastor Dave. Pastor Dave comes to us from Calvary Chapel, Cape May in Cape May, New Jersey. In today's message, Pastor Dave is in the book of Acts. In this book, you'll hear about many people who had been eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. They were now going to tell others about Jesus, and many were coming to a saving faith. 
If these disciples were just following some flash-in-the-pan rabbi, they wouldn't have been so eager to risk their lives for the sake of telling about this good news. No, it's because they saw it lived out, and they saw the greatest miracle of all happen, Jesus dying and then rising again. What an incredible time to live! So when you're facing opposition and persecution for following Jesus, remember that these disciples did too, and they were willing to face the ramifications for such faith. If you're wrestling with what this means to have a saving faith, we'd love to seek God in prayer with and for you. You can email us your requests at info at capewatchradio.com. If you'd rather call, we can chat with you on the phone too. Our number is 609-884-5821. That phone number once more is 609-884-5821. Anything else you'd like to know about can be found on our website, assurehoperadio.com. We've come to the end of our time together for today, but we'll be back next time as Pastor Dave shares some more great things from the Bible here on Assure Hope. Assure Hope.